So Pontius Pilate, it's a name we repeat every time we do the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of the Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. And here we are, suffering under Pontius Pilate. And it's a name, Pilate, that uh, invites a little, kind of some cute little misunderstandings, like this story, of course, of some children drawing pictures. They draw a picture of the Holy Family, and they're all on an airplane. Not this one yet, not yet, not yet. Uh, too late. That's right. Um, on an, all on an airplane, and um, you know who's this in the front of the airplane? It's Pontius Pilate. You know, it's understanding. And then the second, we can go to that next one now. Uh, Pilate is also you know put an S on it. It's Pilates, right? So um, uh, here's one for you: the natural workout for your average Roman citizen. Anyway, um, it is a name that invites a little punning. But truly, though, and seriously, Pilate is a, a tragic figure. A tragic figure in this whole drama, in some ways he's really kind of a, a pitiful character too. Uh, both strong and horribly insecure and weak at the same time. He's a man of, of great power and yet ends up somewhat powerless here. He's powerless before these Jewish people who press him to use his power. And he becomes quite powerless before Jesus as well. We know a fair amount about him, even from sources outside the Bible, uh, most of which, have dis- which describe him uh, pretty critically, actually. He was the fifth Roman governor of the province of Judea, which was all part of the Roman Empire, of course, at this time. He was the fifth one there. He served from A.D. 26 to 36, and he was known as a brutal leader. He was what was known as a lower nobility, not quite as cool and as high as those back in Rome. Uh, so he was always on his guard. He was always aware of his own vulnerability. He could mess up at any moment and be stripped of away of his power at any time. And so, therefore, he ruled and he controlled Judea harshly. And he was always controlling them harshly with an eye towards his masters in Rome. And so it made, it made Pilate shifty, shady, and impulsive swinging from power to bouts of seeming passivity even, like he was with Jesus in this part of the gospel. Power and powerlessness. Power and powerlessness. That's what's so great about this story is they kind of flip-flop here. Who has which in the story of Jesus' trial? Who has the power and who is powerless? Obviously, Pilate, in terms of his political standing and what he could do and what he could order the Roman soldiers to do, has ultimate power in this situation. And here is Jesus who has been stripped of everything. He's been arrested. He is, he is, uh, he is unarmed. He has nobody springing to his defense. Is the one who is without power. And yet, of course, as we know as the story plays out, it's quite the opposite, isn't it? That Jesus is the one with the ultimate power. And Pilate becomes the one who is powerless. As part of this story unfolds, we hear Pilate is uncertain of himself. Really, he really believes in Jesus' innocence, I think. But he comes, he here, we have him here falling powerless before the pressure of the Jewish crowd. This power and powerlessness then becomes sort of a, a dramatic irony that are used, that's used by John to tell this part of the story. The story of Jesus' Roman trial. And so this is what we want to look at, that in this story, this section of John 18, in the story of Jesus' Roman trial, John uses dramatic ironies around the themes of power and powerlessness. In Pilate's earthly power, we see it waffling before Jesus, who stands confidently here as the king of truth, holding ultimate power. So we're going to try to see how those weave together in this passage. 
We're first of all going to look at Pilate and his accusers, these Jewish leaders, to come to him and ask the question. Pilate asked the question to them, what kind of charges? Secondly, we'll see Pilate meeting individually with Jesus here and asking him, what kind of a king are you? And then thirdly, Pilate trying to come up with a plan to get rid of this whole thing. Pilate's whole goal is just to sort of get rid of this whole issue. And he comes up with a plan here and asks the people, who shall I release? Hoping they'll say Jesus, and they of course say Barabbas. And then we're going to take just a few moments at the end reflecting on our own issues with power and powerlessness and take a look at Jesus, our king. So Pilate and the accusers. We pick up right here in chapter 18, right after Peter's denial that we looked at last week. Jesus has moved from Annas, the one high priest, to the former high priest, to Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who is now serving as high priest. But he passes right through him in John's telling to Pilate. We get nothing from Caiaphas in this gospel. You can read the other three about that. But it goes directly here to Pilate. John gives no more detail to the Jewish, Jewish part of Jesus' trial, but goes directly here to the Roman trial. But as the Jewish leaders get him there and deliver him to Pilate, there's a problem. In order for them to enter into the governor's palace, in a Pilate's palace, would be to defile themselves. This is Gentile territory. They can't go in there. And, and this becomes another kind of a, almost sort of a sick irony here in this telling of the story. We have the religious purity that they're after, while at the same time they're hatching an evil, godless plot. <laughs> they're concerned about their religious purity Well, in a sense, they're opposing the work of God himself. These Jewish leaders are so concerned with the regulations of their law, these regulations that are meant to honor God, but it's just part of their routine, it's part of their fear, it's part of their measuring up, it's part of their pride. They cannot defile themselves, but what they're coming in for is to implement their evil plot to kill God's Messiah. They're working their way around the Jewish laws in order to get this guy killed. And here they're seeking an evil partnership with the Romans. They're trying to build a part. They're trying to use the Romans to kill Jesus. They're seeking an evil partnership with them, the ones that they don't want to be near in their home because it might defile them. But if you come outside, we can work together and get the guy killed. Do you get it? It's a sick and sad irony. And so Pilate accommodates them and comes outside. He's kind of used to dealing with their religious laws now. He leaves Jesus inside the palace and goes out to meet with them. And there he asks them a direct question to which they respond with really a rather evasive answer. The direct question is this, what charges are you bringing against this man? It's a normal question in the beginning of a trial. Kind of let me know what it is, then I'll conduct a trial and we'll determine guilt and I'll come up with a verdict. But it's not so easy. It's difficult to answer this question because the Jewish leaders really do not have a charge that will stand up to the Roman court of law. They just want him dead. So they don't really have an answer to his question, so they give an evasive non-answer and they say this, well, if he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Isn't that great? What are the charges? Well, if he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't hand him over to you. Well, what's the charges? Pilate is annoyed. This is so unimportant to him. This is such a waste of his governor, powerful, Romany time. And so he exerts his power here to simply get rid of him. He says in the second, first part of verse 31, just take him yourselves and judge him by your own law, which is not what they want. They just want him dead, and only the Romans can order an execution. So Pilate meets with these accusers. So as Pilate's meet with these accusers, there really are no charges There's just their goal, their goal of execution. Because when he says that to them, go judge them by your own laws, they say then, but we have no right to execute anyone. 
It's more like we don't have the power to execute him. There's no way that our law could condemn him. But you, Pilate, you have the power to do this. And we have the power, Pilate, to really, in a sense, we have a power to manipulate you. We have the power to take advantage of your desire to show power. We have the power to tap into your vulnerability of your fear of losing power. And so we're using you. We're manipulating you. We're taking power away from you in order to use your power to overpower, to get him done. We will wear you down, Pilate. Now, it doesn't say any of that, but that's really what's kind of going on here. In this interplay of powerful people, powerless people, manipulation going on. And John says it's really a bigger part of the bigger story anyway. Verse 32 says this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death that he was going to die. What had Jesus said? He had said way back earlier in the Gospel of John that the Son of Man would be lifted up. And lifted up meant crucifixion. And only the Romans had the power to crucify Pilate has no answer for that. At least none's recorded. What is recorded is that he turns his back on them and he goes back inside the palace and he summons Jesus. It's time for a formal inquiry. And so we move from Pilate and uh, this little interplay with the accusers to Pilate and Jesus. Pilate begins with a question that all four Gospels record. All four Gospels have Pilate asking Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? It seems like a straightforward question, but actually it's really a loaded question, particularly the way it happens here in this interplay. It's loaded because it's loaded with political meaning as somebody like Pilate asks it, and it's loaded with biblical meaning because it's being asked to Jesus. You see, to say, are you the king of the Jews, there was no such thing as a king of the Jews, or at least there wasn't at this time in history. Herod the Great, the one that we know as kind of the evil character back in the story of Jesus' birth, That Herod was the last one who held a title king of the Jews. And the Romans said, we don't really need a king of the Jews because this is Roman territory. So there was not a king of the Jews. So somebody was the king of the Jews. It probably symboled some sort of rebellion. Rome would not authorize a king of the Jews. And so it was loaded with all of that meaning, but it was loaded with two different perspectives and two completely different potential answers. You see, Jesus' response to the question is another one of his typical (laughs) non-answers, or evasive, but it's not really evasive. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And he says to him, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? Is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? Because the answer is going to be real different depending on the answer to that question. So if others talk to you, that would be the Jewish leaders who are seeking to execute me. If nobody's talked to Pilate, if Pilate says, no, I just want to know if you're the king of the Jews and you're trying to take over. If no is the answer, then the, the question is a political one. So then Pilate's asking, are you, are you the one who is challenging Rome? Are you the claimant king? Are you a political threat seeking to overthrow the Roman government? Pilate really needs to get at that in his really official role as governor. He needs to establish, is this a threat to Rome? And so if that's Pilate's question, if nobody's told him about Jesus and he simply wants to know if he's a threat to the Roman government, then the answer from Jesus would be obviously, no, I'm not that kind of king. But if the answer is yes, that is the answer to has somebody talked to you, have these others, have these who have been trying to kill me, have these Jewish leaders been after you and their claims. And the question is really, are you the messianic king of Israel? Are you the one that the scriptures expect to come and change everything? And then Jesus' answer to that, obviously, would be yes. See, it's kind of a loaded question. Are you the king of the Jews? But it's a simple one, too. 
Essentially, the question that we're trying to get at here is what kind of king? Pilate's trying to get at that. But Jesus does not answer either of those, and Pilate does not answer them either about whether who told him. Rather, Pilate again distances himself from all this Jewishness. And he says, interestingly, he says, am I a Jew? Which we know the answer to that, too. He's not. But basically what he's saying here, I think, is I am just so not interested in your Jewish theological squabbles. I do not care. Am I a Jew that I should get wrapped up in all of these things? No. And so he reverts back to the charges. I just need to know if there's charges against you and if I can get you out of my life right now. And now Jesus answers about the kingdom. Or I'm sorry. He says, am I a Jew? I'm so not interested. He reverts the charges and asks, what is it that you have done? What is it you have done? And now Jesus answers about the kingdom in which he is king. And Jesus says, well, actually, it's a different kind of kingdom. He doesn't answer the question about charges still. He says, it's a different kind of kingdom. Verse 36 says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's interesting, this is one of the few places that the Gospel of John refers to the kingdom of God. That word that's so familiar to us in the other Gospels. You know that Matthew mentions kingdom 55 times, and John mentions it three times. But this is a really key place for it to be mentioned. My kingdom is not of this world. He's speaking of the otherness of the kingdom. And by speaking of the kingdom's otherness, Jesus is deflecting all of those political implications that Pilate's been trying to get at. He's saying this, his kingdom did not even originate in this world. There's no way that it could ever be a rival to Caesar's kingdom. In fact, Jesus said, and the evidence is that, that, that you don't see all of my disciples trying to fight and seize it. They didn't fight to prevent my arrest. The only one instance where somebody did fight was when Peter whacked off Malchus's ear and Jesus put a stop to that and said, that's not the way we're going to do this thing. He said, this is a different kind of kingdom. It's a different kind of power. My kingdom is from a different place, he says in verse 36. So Pilate pushes him a little bit on this now. He's still looking for a way to charge him or at least to simply dismiss him. So he goes, so you are a king then. Jesus, as usual, does not really answer yes. Some versions interpret it as a yes. Some actually interpret it as, well, if that's what you want to call me. (laughs) Jesus doesn't go, yes, I am the king. He doesn't say that. He says, well, yeah. But he diverts it now to the nature of the kingdom rather than his identity. He refers now to the nature of the kingdom that it is a kingdom of truth. It's not just a place of true things. It's not just a commitment to truthfulness. It's really what he came to point to, to testify to. It's what he is. He is the essence of truth. He is the king of truth. It's a kingdom of truth. Back in 1460, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. To be aligned with Jesus then is to be aligned with the truth. Okay, that's a lot of detail this story. I... I, I think I can feel the power shifting here. Jesus here is clear and he's certain, he's confident. He's been able to face each question and whether it's one that was worthy of an answer or not, but he clearly knows who he is and what's going on here. He knows how this thing's going to play out. Even when it looks like the Jewish leaders will be winning, they won't be and he will be. (laughs) He knows this. He's confident then of who he is. 
And yet Pilate here is, 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 isn't sure of what to do with all of this. His response here, when Jesus talks about the kingdom and he talks about the truth and he talks about being the truth and the king of the truth, Pilate's response is, what is truth? This is one of the famous parts of the Bible where Pilate says, what is truth? This can be seen as sort of a pondering question. I think sometimes in some of the movies we see Pilate go, and what is truth? Like begging Jesus, tell me what it is. I didn't look up what the original word is, but the NIV says, what is truth, Pilate retorted. What's a retort? I looked up the definition of retort because it's not part of my working vocabulary every day. Sharp, angry, wittily incisive. And some commentators say cynical. Jesus says, my kingdom is a kingdom of truth and I am the center of that kingdom as king. I embody the truth that the world needs. And Pilate just goes, what is truth? He don't know what truth is. And it's another effort to simply get rid of the sky. He is falling powerless before this person. He thinks he's powerful, but he is not. He does not even wait for an answer or wait for a dialogue on the nature of truth. He simply, the scripture says, he turns and leaves the room. What is truth? Turns on his heel and out he goes. And he goes back to the people out on the porch, looks at them and says, I find no basis for a charge against him. Done. I'm so hoping we are done with this. That with that verdict, he hopes that he can close the door on this, cling to what power he has, and move on. And so he comes with a plan, though. He's got to kind of get rid of this thing. So we have Pilate and his plan. Who should he release? See, I think Pilate really believes that Jesus is innocent. He's just trying to let go of this innocent guy who's kind of had this gathering of people that really is absolutely no threat to Rome, so he doesn't care about any of this other stuff. He's not a threat to Rome. He's clear about that. And so he comes up with this custom that's been in play. There's only a little bit of evidence that this really was a custom then, other than what we have here in Scripture, but there's evidence that it did happen, maybe not every year. But he says it's a time, at the time of the Passover, it's a custom to release one prisoner. And so he thinks this will be a way to kind of save face for me and to be, get rid of this guy. And so he says, um, shall I release to you the king of the Jews? He uses the name again, or at least John uses the term that he uses the king of the Jews. Shall I give you back Jesus the king? Or do you want me to give you Barabbas the revolutionary? Who would want to let that guy go? He's a troublemaker. It seems like a no-brainer to Pilate. But the people, with their power now, surprise him and cry out, give us Barabbas. The people now have grabbed the power. And they put Pilate in this situation where he gave them the choice. He gave them the choice. He gave it away. Who shall I release to you? thinking they say Jesus, and he was wrong. They said Barabbas, and now he's stuck with Jesus, and the trial's going to have to continue. In two weeks, we'll continue the trial in two weeks. We're taking a week off for Windy City Project worship next week, but we will get to it. The decision goes the other way. The decision goes into the hands of the people. Pilate now is forced, in order to save face, to release the one who is a threat to Rome, rather than the one he knows is not a threat to Rome. We will see in a couple weeks how he will still push for the innocence of Jesus, but he waffles and buckles again. This one with great power is also the one with great insecurity. This one with great power becomes the one who is powerless before the people and powerless before the king, the one who truly is the king of the Jews, the one who truly is our king and savior. Power and powerlessness. 
Think about it in your own experience, your own life. Just take a few moments, reflect on this. Where are the places that you places that we, we struggle with that? If you're a person who struggles at all with um, either addictive tendencies or has has struggled with areas of depression, you you know what powerlessness feels like. It's even part of the first step in the twelve steps of recovery, not just alcoholism at all kinds of recovery to admit a powerlessness over things but you also know the debilitating feel of a powerlessness when you've gone through failures or depression is creeping around or perhaps you're somebody that's maybe prone the other way you're prone to a perfection you're prone to a, a control of things in terms of how your world is ordered and the people and the relationships in your world are ordered too and it, it gives you a little bit of sense of security but it is a little bit of way of, of having some power over things in our life but it never works all the time, does it? You see, we have to deal with issues of power and powerlessness too. Or maybe it's the people that we have to work or live with. Maybe we feel that we are in a situation where we are overpowered when we need to be empowered. We are overpowered in relationships, in an unhealthy relationship where one partner takes control and there's a sense of powerlessness there. Or maybe you're in a situation on your job that feels downright unjust because of misuses of power. See, we all, it affects our lives in one way or another. No matter how we're wired up, it can come in. And that's why I think really this issue of power, I kind of keep coming back to it because I think it's so strong here towards the end of John. There's an empowerment that is given to us in Jesus Christ and the empowerment only comes to us when we recognize our powerlessness. (laughs) that we really don't have the power to control things and to make things perfect. And we're not to abdicate power in our life either. Jesus comes as Lord, Savior, and King to be that empowerment, the only right kind of empowerment we have. Let's reflect on the power of Christ working in us, the power of Christ our King working in us. What is that like? As I thought about this myself in these last few days and preparing this, I went to one of my favorite go-to verses. It's one of the few places that red letters show up in one of the epistles. Red letters are Jesus' words, you know. This is in the second, second book of Corinthians, chapter 12, verse 9. This is Jesus speaking. My grace is sufficient to you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And what is the context here? If you don't know the story, I encourage you to read it later. But this is where Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh. We don't know what Paul's thorn was. We don't know if it's physical, emotional, mental, Sexual, some think. But there was something that, that Paul felt was this, this fault, this failure in him, this powerlessness in him that he couldn't seem to bring under control. He perhaps felt that it was something that was disappointing Christ all the time and he really had seen such a miraculous change in his life, such a turnaround in his life, but this thorn wouldn't be taken away from him. But he heard in a vision, heard clearly from the Lord Jesus that God had plenty of grace for him, that Jesus had grace to give him, that his grace would be sufficient, that Jesus' power would only show when Paul admitted his weakness and powerlessness. This verse is a go-to for me because I'm well aware of the things that poke and prod me as thorns in my life that I can't seem to quite get past. 
But rather than driving us to a place of shame and of not fall, of falling short and powerless before this God we think wants us to be perfect, it ought to drive us the other way. This verse drives us the other way. It's an invitation from Jesus to come to that place of empowerment, admitting our weakness and our need for the grace of Jesus, the power of Jesus, for Jesus to be our king. We admit our weakness. We admit our powerlessness. And we walk closely with our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Let's take a moment to reflect on those things. And then let's turn our hearts as I pray towards our gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this story of you, this image of you, this reality that you stood confident before your accusers. That the frightening events of the crucifixion were to come. You knew who you were and you knew where your power came from. Lord, we thank you that you can be that empowerment also in our own lives. And we pray that you would um, be at work in the hearts and minds of each of us as we look to you. We thank you, Lord, that as you stood there, you were confident of who you were as king, confident that you were and you embodied truth. And so, Lord, we give you great thanks today. We thank you for enduring all that you endured for us. We thank you for standing strong as king. We thank you, Lord, for being there for your people then. We thank you for your grace that overflows and is more than sufficient for us now. We give thanks to you and we pray that you would be glorified in and through all of this. We pray in your name. Amen.